0: He lost in a monumentous landslide, one of the largest in the history of presidential elections. But we remember Walter Mondale not for his loss, but for who he was and what he gave to America. This week on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike. For president,
1: add Ike to you, and think to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy. He'll come
2: out on top Both for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot
1: because
2: they're the ones to lead the USA
0: Thanks for joining us and welcome to episode 363 of The Political Junkie I'm Ken Rudin I regret to say that my recovery from back surgery is taking longer than I would have liked I'm getting there just not yet my boyfriend's back and you're gonna be in trouble. Hey lay hey, la, my boyfriend's and back. See you coming, better cut out on the double. Hey, lad, hey, lad, my boyfriend's back. You've been spreading- Alright, alright. Because I'm unable to sit for long and not at full strength, it's killing me that I'm not yakking about the Minneapolis verdict and expanding the court and the latest gun violence and Matt Gaetz's girlfriend and Republican efforts to curtail the vote and Andrew Cuomo's problems and the New York City mayoral race and the battle to kill the filibuster and the pullout from Afghanistan and the crisis at the border and the Gavin Newsom recall and all that 2022 stuff. Rest assured, that day is coming soon. Uh, Hopefully. But with Walter Mondale's death earlier this week, I wanted to replay the interview I had with him in April of 2015. It was around the time when Hillary Clinton was running for president and possibly about to make history. I saw that as a great opportunity to speak to Mondale about his selection of Geraldine Ferraro for vice president, another history-making moment. Yes, Mondale lost 49 states to Ronald Reagan in that 1984 election. But he stood as a champion of the poor, of civil rights, of women's rights, of education, of health care. He believed that government was to be used to protect the weak and the defenseless throughout his entire political life. And when he served as vice president under Jimmy Carter, he became the first VP in history to have a meaningful role with serious influence in policy. I hope you got to read my appreciation of Mondale in Tuesday's USA Today. Anyway, enough chatter. Here's my interview with Mondale back in April 2015. Rest in peace, Mr. Vice President. You served your country well. The election of Hillary Clinton, of course, would be historic, the first female president. But we saw history being made just over 30 years ago at the Democratic National Convention in San Francisco.
1: Ladies and gentlemen of the convention, my name is Geraldine Ferraro.
0: The man who made that history happen is Walter Mondale. The former vice president from Minnesota, he was the Democratic nominee for president in 1984, and he selected Ferraro, a congresswoman from Queens, New York, as his running mate. She was the first woman ever to appear on a major party presidential ticket. Mondale made history in another way as well. He's the first former vice president ever to appear on The Political Junkie. (laughs) Mr. Vice President, welcome to the show.
2: Well, I didn't realize I was uh, engaging in this historic day today, but it's an honor to be on this
0: program with you. <laughs> it's history in the making, as we like to say. Right. You know, we call ourselves political junkies not, not only because we live, eat, and breathe politics, but we have a reverence for it all. The, the history, the lore, the people who came before us, especially the history— I alluded to the potential for history being made with Hillary Clinton's election, and that's true with Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz as well. We've never, we've never had a Latino president. But that was history in 1984 with your selection of Ferraro. Tell us a little bit about what went into that decision.
2: Um, one of the important realities of the 84 convention, which I afraid is fading with time, was that there had been a long Uh, process of opening up the political party uh, to prevent discrimination based on race or gender, to make the uh, nominating process more open and fair, to include uh, all of America in our conventions. And while this sounds like Fourth of July rhetoric, many of the top political scientists and reporters covering the 84 convention remarked about how our party had changed and was more of all of those things I've discussed. And I think nothing underscores that more than the Geraldine Ferraro selection. Uh, you know, we're 51% female in America, but we'd never had a woman on the either, of either national major party ticket ever. Uh, I spent a lot of time reviewing who I might pick as a running mate. And as I got down to it, I decided that Ferraro would help in so many ways. She's First of all, she's bright. She had an excellent record in the Congress. Tip O'Neill told me she's the person you need. And I was hoping that she would give some life to the process. You know, one of the... Big problems in politics is boredom, uh, old stuff, tiresome stuff, uh, and this 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 offered to America an entirely different version of what America should be about. And I think, although we we got clobbered, I think that the, the message was sent that was deep and profound. Well, my, I, I'll stop there. But in my state. Just start, for example, um, we have a U.S. Senator, Amy Klobuchar, the first woman ever to be a senator from Minnesota. Probably the most sen- popular uh, senator in, in Minnesota history, competing with Hubert Humphrey, who was the phenomenon. But uh, all across the nation, uh, in politics, in business, and academia, wherever, uh, women have made a lot of progress since that convention.
0: Well, we all know that vice presidents don't usually sway the election. Maybe Lyndon Johnson did. I'm not sure if there was anyone else. But but looking back to that decision, a proud moment? um, Any regrets? Uh, No. Um, I I made a choice there. I knew
2: it was risky. Uh, I wanted to take a chance. I wanted to speak out on the issues we just discussed. Uh, I, I liked and like Geraldine Ferraro. She was a great running mate. No, I don't have any regrets.
0: You were the attorney general of your home state of Minnesota when you were appointed to the Senate to replace Hubert Humphrey, who was elected vice president. How does one fill the shoes of Hubert Humphrey?
2: <laughs> Good question. They're a big pair of shoes, as you know. He, he was one of the uh, great politicians that I've ever known and, and a reformer to his core. All the great issues of civil rights, Medicare, health care reform, and so on. You'll find Humphrey's tracks all over them. So when he was selected by Johnson to be his running mate, it was a big deal here in Minnesota and around the country. I think people applauded that. And it opened up the who, the question of who would replace him in the Senate. And I, I'll always be honored by the fact that that I, I was picked for that and with Hubert's help.
0: Speaking about Humphrey, in many ways he had a, a, a tortured vice presidency. He was loyal to Lyndon Johnson, but he was desperate to break free from his Vietnam policy when he was running for president. When Jimmy Carter picked you as his running mate, did you think about Humphrey's plight and what path you might take as VP?
2: I did. As a matter of fact, I was... Uh, discouraged by what Humphrey went through that you've just described. I mean, I think that if you look back on it, Humphrey would have been far better off to stay in the Senate where he was a free man and where he enjoyed massive national support. When he went into the vice presidency, he was eclipsed by Lyndon Johnson. And, uh, of course, the war was a disaster early in... Uh, their administration. Humphrey wrote a letter to Johnson saying, let's watch out this war and Vietnam's going to be a real tragedy. Let's try to steer away from it. But Johnson didn't like that and sort of chilled Humphrey for some months in uh, sort of cutting him out of the administration. And uh, then Johnson and Humphrey tried to reclaim some stature there uh, and uh, there's no question that the war, one of the war's greatest victim, other than those who have been injured and killed in it, was the career um, and the psyche of Hubert Humphrey.
0: You came to the Senate the same time as Bobby Kennedy did. And, and there were a lot of giants in the Senate back then, uh, Everett Dirksen, Phil Hart, Richard right. Russell. Do you recognize today's Senate at all?
2: Well, y- yes yes, and no. I think there's a lot of good senators. We've got two of them here from Minnesota are excellent, Klobuchar and Franken. But the way the Senate works now, the way the rules have throttled and paralyzed action in the Senate, particularly the growth of the uh, right-wing ideologues in the Senate that get elected on a program of paralyzing the country, Uh, had had made progress, reform, almost impossible in the Senate. And the Senate that, when we were around, was almost the cutting edge of reform has now become just the opposite. You know, I'm hoping things will change, but I, I sure don't see it
0: yet. Until, we were talking about the vice presidency earlier, and you talked, we talked about the unhappiness that Hubert Humphrey had as VP. And, of course, we do know that LBJ hated leaving the Senate to be vice president. He was unhappy in that position, too. Um, he did.
2: But you know, a, there's that wonderful story. Uh, Johnson got elected vice president. And, of course, being Johnson, I know you've covered him. You know what I'm talking about. He wanted to remain— a part of the Senate Caucus, and he wanted to be Chairman of the Senate Caucus, the DF of the Democratic Senate Caucus. Well, uh, when Mansfield found that out, they, uh, when the Caucus found that out, they kicked Johnson out of the Caucus. So he was he was not in the power structure of the Senate. So he gave up. He found this this all-powerful position as leader of the Senate to become uh, sort of a cipher in the office of vice president. And he took it very
0: hard. Well, until you became vice president, the job seemed to be mostly ceremonial. But you seemed to become the first with real duties, real authority. H- how was your time in that position?
1: Well, you know, you,
2: you asked a couple of good questions I didn't answer, but I'll, let me get back to them.
0: I went to see
2: Humphrey. Uh, before any of this, and I said, you know, I got a shot at the vice presidency, but do I want it? I know what you went through. Uh, could this happen to me? Why should I give up uh, a good Senate? And Humphrey argued, no, do it. He said, you'll learn more about the world than you can in the Senate. You, you, you will grow as a public leader. If you have a chance, you you have to you, you have to take this and try to make something out of it. Another series of conversation I was having was with uh, Dick Moe, the head of my office, and with others, and, with, and finally with Carter and the people around him, about changing the vice presidency. And what came out of that was that we, as new vice president, moved into the West Wing. Uh, we had an agreement. It's still you know, it's in its writing. It's almost like a part of the Constitution now. But it was just a memo from Dick Moe to me. And I went to Carter and I said, "I'd like to be in." I said, "I'd like to be your general advisor. I would like to have access to the all the inside information and to you when necessary. And I'd like to do troubleshooting in the Congress, around the country, and internationally." He agreed to all of that, and uh, we merged our staffs. Uh, I think we cut out a lot of that old fighting that you used to report on, and it worked. And I think the reforms that succeeded under Carter and myself have been copied roughly ever since by all later vice presidents. But if you look at Joe Biden, you see the elements of our vice presidency change to suit Biden and Obama, and I think it's been very successful.
0: You mentioned Joe Biden. I mean, he's been a loyal vice president for two terms. But so as a former vice president yourself, do you feel for the situation he's in? I mean, are you saddened that it looks like he'll never get his chance to move up?
2: Oh, I I think he's really glad to be vice president. I think he he looks happy to me. (laughs) Uh, I I know that he would like to be president. Every vice president (laughs) has that thought. But whether that will work now, I don't know. It doesn't look likely, but let's face it, Joe Biden had a long, wonderful, spectacular public career. He's the second most important person in public life in America, and because of that around the world, he's having a rich and abundant career now. I I don't know what's going to happen here. I don't want to bet, but I think he's got to be pretty happy with where he is.
0: Going back into your career, uh, you had, of course, a debate with fellow vice presidential candidate Bob Dole in 1976, who, who famously growled about those who died in Democrat wars.
1: <laughs>
0: but, but that didn't compare to when you squared off against President Reagan in 1984 and this memorable line.
1: You already are the oldest president in history, and some of your staff say you were tired after your most recent encounter with Mr. Mr. Uh, Mondale. Um,
0: I still remember, Mr. Vice President. I still remember your reaction to that. I mean, you were laughing; we were all laughing. But yeah. I want to know what went through your mind at that time. I mean, many, wow. many, many people have written that the election was settled at that very moment. Do you think so?
2: It might have been, as you recall, the first debate uh, Reagan had performed miserably. Yes, he seemed to forget his lines. Reagan had a series of little speeches he used. And he would start those speeches and forget them. And it it was, I thought, a very painful night for Reagan. And, in fact, after that first debate, we started uh, building in the polls. It looked like maybe, maybe we had a chance. Well, then the second debate, he came on. He was alive. He was engaged. I think he'd worked on that joke for some time. and, And it worked. You know, uh, I could have argued. Look, uh, I'm in my mid-50s. That's not too young. I've had uh, a decade of experience in, the, in in the Senate and 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 as vice president. Uh, so, both in terms of energy and and the rest, I should be prepared to to be a strong president. I decided I wouldn't do any of that. I just let that sit where it was.
0: You went into the 1984 primaries as the clear frontrunner for your party's nomination. Now, as it turned out, your battle with Gary Hart and I guess also Jesse Jackson probably went on longer than you would have liked. But you started as the frontrunner and you won the nomination. Do you see any comparison with your situation in 1983, 84 to what Hillary Clinton faces today?
2: You know, I don't think so. I think that it was a different time. Um, I, it is true that those polls early on showed me clear ahead, but I never believed those polls. I needed to be challenged and was, I think Gary Hart proved to be a pretty impressive opponent. And of course, Jesse Jackson, I was kind of proud to have him in the race because he, uh, spoke for a new generation of minority Americans that were finally getting some respect.
0: We're doing this interview on Tax Day, so I have to ask you this question. You said something in your 1984 acceptance speech that was either the bravest thing anyone could possibly say or was the most foolish. Here's that tape.
1: I mean business. By the end of my first term, I will reduce the Reagan budget deficit by two-thirds. Let's tell the truth. That must be done. It must be done. Mr. Reagan will raise taxes, and so will I. He won't tell you.
0: I just did. It's not often you find a politician who says, elect me, I'm going to raise your taxes.
2: Uh, a couple of years after that uh, statement, the governor of uh, New Jersey at a public meeting said, i said, you know, Fritz, you damn fool. I told you to raise taxes after the election and i talk about it. But, <laughs> you know, it may, it may have hurt me, but I, once again, I did, I did what I thought was right. It still bothers me that people run for office knowing damn well that taxes have to be raised, uh, sort of avoid the discussion, and then after the election, discover, oh, look at here, we've got a deficit. And so I feel good about the fact that I told the truth. I think maybe people looking back at it uh, may have appreciated it more than they did on Election Day. But, but I don't know. I hear many people tell me that it was a bad mistake. But there you have it.
0: You've been through the political wars for decades. You've seen so much, accomplished so much. Looking back, is there a signature Walter Mondale moment Uh, I'm going to
2: say it was at that convention where we finally showed America a political party that had opened up, had uh, reformed itself away from discrimination of all kinds, and it invited a whole new generation of young Americans that represented the whole country. I think that, if you ask me what I was proudest of, It's having been a part of those reforms.
0: Mr. Vice President, it was wonderful speaking with you today. Uh, Thank you, Ken. Hope to see you one of these days. I would love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was my interview with Walter Mondale back in April of 2015. Mondale left us on April 19th of this year. And that's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for all your notes and phone calls about my surgery. Hey, Lord,
2: hey, Lord, my
0: okay, enough. <laughs> Thanks for listening and please stay safe. I'll see you soon.
1: I'm Walter Mondale. You may have heard of me, but you may not really know me. I grew up in the farm towns of southern Minnesota. My dad was a preacher, and my mom was a music teacher. We never never had a dime, but we were rich in the values that are important. And I've carried those values with me ever since. They taught me to work hard, to stand on my own, to play by the rules, to tell the truth, to obey the law, to care for others, to love our country, and to cherish our faith